David said to Gad, I am in deep distress. Let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not let me fall into human hands. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from that morning until the end of time designated. And 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. When the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough! Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite. When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I have sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. On that day, Gad went to David and said to him, Go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor at Arana, the Jebusite. So David went up as the Lord had commanded through Gad. When Arana looked and saw the king and his officials coming toward him, he went out and bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. Arana said, Why has the Lord, the king, come to his servant? To buy your threshing floor, David answered, so I can build an altar to the Lord, that the plague on the people may be stopped. Arana said to David, Lord, uh, let my lord the king take whatever he wishes and offer it up. Here are oxen for the burnt offering, and here are threshing sledges and ox yokes for the wood. Your majesty, Arana gives all this to the king. Arana also said to him, may the lord your god accept you. But the king replied to Arana, no, I insist on paying for it. I will not sacrifice to the lord my god burnt offerings that cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen and paid 50 shekels of silver for them. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then the Lord answered his prayer on behalf of the land, and the plague on Israel was stopped. Father God, we come before you recognizing that um, we are very much in need the way those children of Israel are. And we pray, Father, that as we listen this morning, that your spirit would speak through Jackson, that you would be the one lifted up and glorified in the things that are said, and that we would come away all the more enamored with who you are and what it means to for you to be our king. Father, we want to remember Robin and Marilyn, too, as they are um, away. We know part of it will be break, part of it will not be. But we pray, Father, that the time that they spend back in Canada will be precisely what they need to be recharged and refreshed and um, re-prepared to return when they do later this year. So we give ourselves to you, Lord, as that offering. Thank you. That's not a burnt offering, Lord, but we give ourselves to you as a sacrifice and pray that you would be glorified in all the things that take place today. In Jesus' name. Good morning. It's a privilege to be here. I want to thank Robin and the council for the invitation to take the month of May. We're going to look at the life of David. We're going to look at five snapshots at the life of David, and we're going to look at the first one. Really, it's one of the last events in David's life, but we're going to do it today because it fits with communion. Many years ago, I was reading uh, the Grand Rapids Press, which is a country, or a country, which is a state in America, in Michigan. Grand Rapids is a city in Michigan in America. <laughs> I'm from England. <laughs> Can't you tell? Okay. And I came across a fascinating story about a mom, and it was told by eyewitnesses. A mom was walking down the street with her toddler when a big red pickup truck came driving down the street out of control. It was a drunk driver. 
And as the truck got closer, the mother froze as she's holding the hand of her young son. She wasn't quite sure what to do, not quite sure what the truck was going to do. And right in front of her, the truck pulled up on the sidewalk and came barreling down to her. And the only thing she could think of is she reached down and picked up her son and put her son up over her head. And the truck hits her in the chest. The little boy's knocked to the grass and he lives, but the mother is killed instantly by the impact of the truck. An exchange takes place, doesn't it? A mother exchanges her life for the life of her son. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, the exchange. So let me just pray for a moment. Father God, I would pray that anything that is of me and not of you would quickly be forgotten. But I'm reminded that when I say your words after you, there is power, there is clarity, there is hope. Because Isaiah tells us that your word never returns to you without you accomplishing your agenda on the hearts of people. And may we not just be merely hearers of your word. As James says, may we be doers of your word, putting this into practice in our relationship with you and then our relationship with each other. And now with our heads bowed, let me just give you a moment to pray. Maybe your prayer is just simply this this morning. Father God, what do you have for me? I don't want to miss it. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to be receiving communion. And it's interesting, there's themes that run all through the Bible that really point us toward communion through the cross. And again, this morning, we're going to look at that. Like Passover, you can trace Passover all the way through the Bible that brings us to the cross and brings us to the table. Communion is where we celebrate, it's where we remember, and it's where we connect by faith with the story of the cross. And so this morning, we're going to look at three stories. The first one, Genesis 22, and the story of Abraham. Abraham is told by God to take your son, your only son. Now, it's interesting, that language, your son, your only son, because it connects Abraham to God. If you remember John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's if God is inviting Abraham to step into something that God the Father is going to experience 2,000 years later with his own son. He says, take Isaac, and I want you to go to the region of Moriah, and I will show you which mountain, and I want you to sacrifice your son there. Now, remember, Isaac is the promise. Isaac is the one that came in his old age. Isaac is the one that had been foretold. Isaac is the one they'd hoped for. And finally, Isaac is here, and he's a teenage boy. And God says, take your son, your only son, and sacrifice him. Now, there's a lot there to unpack, which we don't have time to do this morning. But that idea to go take your son. So a three-day journey later, they come to the region of Moriah. And then David, Abraham says to his servants, he says, you stay here. The boy and I will go up and worship and listen to the language and we will return. Now, what's he claiming? What's he believing? Well, Hebrews tells us that he's believing that God could raise Isaac from the dead. Abraham intends to be fully obedient and to trust the results to God. So Isaac straps on the wood. And he goes up the mountain, and his father has the knife and the fire. Now, Isaac's done this a few times with his dad because he's able to go, Dad, got the wood, see the fire, see the knife. Where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice, Dad? And Abraham's words are, 
God will provide. But the next thing you read then is that he ties Isaac up and he puts him on an altar. It tells you a little bit about Isaac and Isaac's trust for his father, that he is willing to be tied up and stretched out at the top of Mount Moriah. Now, let me show you what this region looks like. Doc, thank you. Right there, that's it. You know what? Don't wear it. This thing is demon-possessed this morning. (laughs) Oh, good. This is the region of Moriah, and what you see circled in red then is Mount Moriah. And so they go up to the top of Mount Moriah, and as Isaac lays out there, his father takes the knife. Now, we have a picture that comes like this. In fact, will you go to the next picture for me, Doc? And we have a thought of that he does this. Instead, he would have laid it up against his neck because that's how you would kill an animal. That's how you would really kosher an animal. And he begins to press into the neck and to the point when it's about to break, the angel of God says to Abraham, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. And I'd like to propose that really you could read this. Now, Abraham, you know your level of obedience. Now you know. And then there's a ram that's caught in a thicket. And an exchange takes place. Isaac is released and the ram is taken and is offered as a sacrifice. An exchange. The ram for Isaac. Now the next story is the story of David. In 2 Samuel 24 and also 1 Chronicles 21, there's a harmony of these two. Now what's interesting in Chronicles, we very seldom read anything bad about David. David's life is very much spiritualized. But yet, in this particular event, we get a hint that David is struggling, even in Chronicles. We're told that David is enticed to count his men. The bigger story, when you put the details together, it seems like Israel once again has been disobedient, and God intends to punish Israel. And he's going to do it through David. So Satan comes into the picture and entices David to count his men. Now, why? He wants to see how big his army is. He wants to see the control that he has. What happens in this moment, he no longer trusts on God for his protection, but he wants to count in the number of men that he has. Even Joab, who's not a good guy as you read through Samuel, even Joab, his general, says, David, don't do this. This is not good. It's not healthy. It's not right. And David pushes him and says, go do it. It took nine months for them to go out the land. But Joab chooses not even to finish the count because he knows this is so deeply wrong. David finally realizes what he's done, and he turns his face toward God, and he says, God, I've offended you. And then it says, God spoke to Gad, the seer, the prophet, and he says, you go to David, and you give David three options for his disobedience. Three years of famine in the land, Three months from running from his enemies, which David had already done with his son Absalom, or three days of a plague upon the land. And it's interesting, in 2 Samuel twenty four fourteen, David says, Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. Let's do the plague. 
So for three days throughout the land, 70,000 men are killed in the plague. And the angel of the Lord comes and stands over Jerusalem. He comes and stands over the threshing floor of Arana. Now let me show you a picture of the threshing floor, just so we make sure we understand the significance of what it is. Next one. You'd always do your threshing floor at a high point, so when you toss the grain into the air, the wind will blow and separate the meat from the chaff. And so this top, this place on Mount Moriah, at the very top would have been a great place. Some of you have been to Israel, and you know the top there. And it was owned by a Jebusite. David is the king of the city of Jerusalem, but this Jebusite still lives there and still owns this particular land. So the angel comes with a sword and stands over Jerusalem, over this threshing floor. And David sees it, and then David falls down on the ground. And let's put this up here on the screen. Let's go to the next one so you get a context of it. Again, there's Jerusalem, David's city, Mount Moriah. You can go to the next one. 2 Samuel 24 says, When David saw the angel who was striking down the people, he said to the Lord, I'm the one who has sinned. I'm the one who's done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall upon me and my family. Don't let the plague continue. Punish me. Take my life. I sacrifice my life for the sake of these others, Lord. And the angel of the Lord said to Gad, go tell David to buy the land and build an altar and bring a sacrifice to me right there on Mount Moriah. Now we're told that Arana has four sons and the five of them are working the threshing floor when David approaches him. We're also told that once they see the angel of the Lord with the sword, they go and hide themselves. And David comes to him and says, I want to buy the threshing floor from you. With the angel of God standing with a sword, what a great negotiating tool. And Arano says, it's yours. If it's going to stop the plague, it's yours. And really, it's very, very Middle Eastern is that you offer it first and you negotiate. And then David says in 2 Samuel 24, 24, he says, No, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. A sacrifice is to cost us something. So David builds an altar. He takes the, the threshing machine that's made of wood. He takes the the yoke that is on the oxen, and he builds an altar there, and he takes the oxen and cuts it up and places that on top of the altar. And then what's interesting that you read, it says, David called on the Lord, and God answered from heaven with fire. He didn't like the wood. God answers. A way of expressing to David that I receive your offering. On Mount Moriah, an exchange took place. David's life is spared, and oxen are sacrificed in his place. We're told in Second Chronicles 3.1 that Solomon builds the temple right here, right here on Mount Moriah. 
And it's interesting in the New Testament that the first verse of the New Testament in Matthew 1.1 would be a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the connection that Jesus has to these two. On this same Mount Moriah. Doc, would you go to the next picture for me? Jesus was condemned to death by Pilate. What you see there is a picture of the Fort Antonia. It was in this fort where Jesus is taken before Pilate. It was on Mount Moriah where he was accused by the Jewish leaders. It was where he is scourged by the Roman soldiers. It's where a crown of thorns is jammed upon his head. It's where Pilate washes his hands of Jesus on Mount Moriah. Then Jesus walks just 10 minutes away to outside the city, to the place of the skull in the region of Mount Moriah. Now let me show you a picture of a place of trumpeting. Josephus, who was a first century historian, tells us this is where the place of trumpeting was located. In fact, they have found a plaque that's in the Israel Museum that says to the place of trumpeting. Go to the next one for me, right there. On significant days, a priest would climb to the high point, to this place of trumpeting, and take a large shofar and blow it. The reason this is important for us, because at 3 o'clock on Passover, in preparation for the Passover meal to begin at sundown, A priest climbs to the very top, to the place of trumpeting. He takes that huge shofar, and he turns and he blows it. And we're told that all over Jerusalem, a couple hundred thousand people that have come for this particular feast, all turn, and they face the temple knowing that at that moment, the high priest is killing a Passover lamb for the nation to remind them of what took place years before. The Gospels also tell us in the book of Matthew that it was at 3 o'clock at the same moment when the shofar is blown and everyone turns to the temple that Jesus hangs on a cross and he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is finished. And he gives up his spirit. Jesus hangs on a cross in the region of Mount Moriah and he calls out, My God, rescue me! Will there be an exchange for him? Isaac had the ram, David had the oxen. Let me put this up here for you. Doc, next one, please. Abraham offers his son, and Abraham brings a knife over the life of his son. But an exchange takes place, a ram for Isaac. David offers himself. An angel holds a sword over Jerusalem. But an exchange takes place. Oxen are offered as a burnt offering in the place of David. Jesus cries out to his heavenly father. 
God offers His Son, and God holds judgment over Jesus. But there's only silence. There is only silence. There is no exchange for Jesus. But it's at this moment you and I both know another exchange took place. Jesus for us. I mean, we should have been on that cross. We're the ones that should come under the penalty of death. We're the ones who've offended God in our thoughts and our actions. We're the ones that should be held accountable. But an exchange takes place. Corinthians says that our sinfulness is poured into Christ and the righteousness of Christ is poured into us in that moment when Jesus is the loneliest on the cross. Many things become true for us in that moment. Let me just share a couple. Jesus endured the silence so that we might hear the call of God. Jesus was punished so that we could be forgiven. Jesus was made sin so that we could be declared righteous. Jesus was rejected so that we might be accepted. Jesus was wounded so that we might be healed. Jesus was abandoned so that we might be adopted. So every time we come to this table, we come celebrating, we come remembering, we become engaging again by faith with the power of this exchange. The significance of what this table represents is so important for us. It is so significant for us that Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians that we come to this table and we examine ourselves before we partake. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight, it says, A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. Or as the message paraphrase says, examine your motive, test your heart, come to this meal in holy awe. We don't come to this table to be redeemed because this table reminds us that we've already been redeemed. The exchange has already taken place. There are times when we may take this table so lightly. We line up, we step forward, we take our bread, we take a cup, we go back to our seat, and we're so used to doing it, we take very little time to reflect on it. Some of us may think this table is a reward for our faithfulness, when really it's just the opposite. It's a reminder that we are not faithful, but that he has been. Some of us come to this table looking for forgiveness for our guilt and our shame, but the table is a reminder that we have already been forgiven. This is why we need to examine ourselves. Why do we come to the table? What condition is our heart in as we come to this table? Some of us are sitting here, and before we come to this table, we need to ask forgiveness towards someone that we have offended. 
And maybe they sit in this room and you need to get up and go and whisper in their ear, will you forgive me? The table is a place where we're prompted again to get in a right relationship with God, to remember what he's done and remember the work that has already been on our account. And how now do we respond in this gospel grace-driven way? Or maybe, who do you need to forgive? Because sometimes what we do is we hold on to things. We have been offended. We have been hurt. And we think we have a right. I have a right to be angry. I have a right to be hurt because of what you've done. We have not released them. We examine ourselves and we realize that. And we need to get that right as we come to the table. See, the table is a table of exchange. Jesus takes your sin, and now we model that as we receive others who have sinned against us. We have been forgiven, and now we model by forgiving others. The gospel works in us in such a way that we extend toward others what we have so powerfully received in the exchange. As Steve said earlier, that we have an open communion Any follower of Christ is welcome to this table. If you appreciate and understand the work of this exchange on Mount Moriah, please come. Examine yourself. Do the hard work of what you need to do, but we invite you to come. But if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we would ask that you not come. For the simple reason, it would not mean for you what Jesus intends for it to mean. It'd be a meaningless act. But our hope would be that maybe you've been in spiritual conversations with people that know you and love you. And maybe they have been talking to you about the work of Christ and how he comes along and relieves our shame and forgives us of our guilt. And maybe today, maybe today God's connected all those spiritual dots. And today you're ready to say, I want to become a follower of Jesus too. Then may this be your first act as a follower of Christ. Come to this table that represents the exchange that has happened for you and for me. I'm going to give you a time of quiet. And my favorite guitar player is going to come up and play a little bit underneath. I'm going to give you some time just to sit so that you can think about examining yourself. I'm going to give you enough time where some of you are going to be uncomfortable. But it's in that uncomfortableness is where the spirit will begin to whisper and speak to you. And maybe your prayer again is, God, what do you have for me? What am I missing? Examine me. Examine me. And then I'll come back up and invite you to the table.